welcome to France Where You Are. Today, in Episode 1, Season 1, we're exploring the beautiful, bedazzling and beguiling Côte d'Azur. Yes, whether you call it the French Riviera, the Côte d'Azur or just the Riviera, this is a special place like no other in France. Today, we're walking around some very special gardens, discovering a villa with a view and not one, but two pink houses. Are you ready? Let's go. C'est parti. Here I am standing by the swaying palm trees of Beaulieu-sur-Mer, looking out to the beautiful Mediterranean Sea. The sun is shining, the heat of the summer has really passed, and I have a warm September day ahead of me. Where to go and what to do? Well, today I'm feeling a bit intrepid, so I want to walk. Let's make the most of this sunshine and explore. Let's go and uncover some gems. Now, little Beaulieu-sur-Mer, or just Beaulieu, is kind of a hidden gem all of its own, really. On the main train line from Nice to Monton via Monaco and on to Italy, if you wish, sitting on the lower or Bascon niche, the road which hugs the coastline, it has views to die for and an enviable little position for travelling around the whole of the Riviera. It's kind of a small town with a market, some decent cafes, restaurants, boulangerie, which has already stolen my heart. It's kind of a quiet, unassuming place or as unassuming as you can get here on the coast. It's such a special little place with the usual casino, marina, the Belle Epoque villas, some smart little shops, hair salons, pharmacy, all these usual sorts of things. And I love it because at this time of the year, it's really easy to walk around, but there's a real sense of real life going on around you, which is great. The tennis club is busy. The cinema is open. There's plenty of that real life going on. And I love it because off season also, it's quiet so I can just focus on my exploring. So standing here by the sea, I know that there's a great coastal walk nearby. What shall we explore first? The very special villa I see silhouetted against the blue sea is the Villa Kerilos, a remarkable project thought of and built for Théodore Nash, who wanted to recreate an authentic Greek villa from antiquity and so that he could pay tribute to a civilization that he adored. Built between 1902 and 1908, it is just absolutely unlike anywhere else I've been in France and is a real gem to explore. On a hot day, it is, of course, welcome shade from the sun outside, full of fascinating furniture, tile designs and more. It's even got a hidden piano. See if you can find that if you go. The villa was designed as a complete whole, so every piece of furniture, based on originals found in Pompeii and Herculaneum, is completely in its context. I love seeing the comforts designed in a building too for the 1900s. That meant showers indoors with bathtubs and thermal baths as well. Lucky guests. With beautiful views opened up to the south and east, it's a place like no other on the coastline. Statues, frescoes and floors decorated in amazing designs. The villa is well worth visiting. But today there isn't time for me to slow down too much as I want to show you one of the glittering gems of this part of the world and that is little, lush and beautiful Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat. After the busy summer, this place is just beautifully quiet on a September day. As I walk from Beaulieu past the Hotel Royal Riviera and the other hotels with their wonderful beach spots, pools and gardens, 
I can follow the Sentier Littoral. It's the easy flat walk right by the sea with walls to your right and nothing really but the sea to your left. And as you walk from Beaulieu, it's a really easy and pretty short walk to Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat. And you can carry on walking all the way around the headland. In fact, you can walk all the way to Villefranche if you're feeling energetic. There are some beautiful beaches and swimming spots on the way and the views are so special. I'm enchanted today to hear the sea, the gentle waves, a few people chatting. It's a lovely, quiet day for a walk. And as a big film fan, I am, of course, thrilled to see the first pink house of the day. I see it first from quite far away, seeing its little harbour and it's right on the sea location. And I wonder, what was it like to live there? What was it like to have that as your holiday home, as David Niven did? He bought the house in 1960 from Charlie Chaplin and Charlie Chaplin's family often stayed at the nearby Grand Hotel Cap Ferrat and his children actually learnt to swim there with, frankly, the unmissable swimming teacher, Pierre Grunenberg. He's been at the hotel's Club Dauphin since he arrived as a hitchhiker from Paris over 60 years ago. His unusual salad bowl breathing technique lessons are legendary and he's helped Hollywood stars, business owners, music legends everyone to swim in the Mediterranean as well as the gorgeous pool at the hotel. Apparently, the pool was built by an Italian spy posing as an architect in 1939. Truth really can be stranger than fiction, right? This amazing man who swims a kilometre in the sea every morning, he's been married twice, doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, eats well and still goes skiing in the winter in his 80s. He's as legendary as the hotel itself. I hope that through these difficult times in 2020, that he's still doing just the same remarkable things, swimming in the beautiful deep blue and getting people to blow bubbles in a salad bowl of water. So as I'm dreaming of Hollywood holiday homes, there's not a hint of Niven-esque gossip as I pass by. The house, the Fleur du Cap, is completely still and silent in its flower-dressed beauty. Now onto another pink house, probably more famous still, and that's the next place on our list. First, I just venture through the tiny Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat town centre, finding a Jean Cocteau artwork in the street, always happy when that happens, and some vintage cars pass by, going down towards the harbour. What a place. The cafes and restaurants not yet doing their lunch service. I walk further to explore the harbour, find the Charlie Chaplin Mediatheque and retrace my steps. I don't go far, though. I'm only retracing, really, in the direction of Beaulieu, via the Place David Niven. And then, after a short while, I turn left. It's signposted, but easy to miss. And then after that, I carry on with a left past a little garage and off I go. There's not really a sign to be seen at this point, but I kind of remember that it must be uphill. And I think on me, I've got my tourist map somewhere, but I figure how wrong can you go in Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat? I'm walking in the road, but surely I'll hear a Ferrari if it comes around the corner, right? Fortunately, there's only two small cars and a scooter who go by. And I make it successfully up to the junction where I feel very happy to have a small square of pavement. And I can stand there and realise I'm actually nearly there already. I turn sharp right and I can see the beautiful gates and the private driveway of the Villa of Frusi de Rothschild. And as I approach the top gate, the view is even more breathtaking than the climb. It's a glorious day. The sun is glittering on the water. There's a lush green view of the gardens, estates and the whole headland beneath. It's truly special. 
So here we are at the Villa of Rusi de Rothschild, looking out over the cap and the wide expanse of cobalt and sapphire sea today. An early 20th century dream of Beatrix, or Beatrice, if Rusi de Rothschild, originally called the Villa Ile de France and built between 1908 and 1912. Having had a relationship breakdown with her husband Maurice, this seems to have been an idea of hers to create somewhere special. It has an almost late Victorian folly quality to it, with Spanish Gothic elements and pink stucco walls. It seems she wanted to kind of recreate one of the journeys of her lifetime aboard the luxury liner, the Ile de France. And this huge plot, uh, it's in total about 12 hectares, um, large part of it was flattened to create the gardens and the house that you see today. Every rock taken off site and reused and remade and hundreds apparently of gardeners to, to help work on this and get it flat, ready for house building. From an upstairs vantage point in the loggia, you have the perfect view of the French garden with fountains and formality. It looks almost as though it were the deck of an enormous classic cruise ship. It's said that she even had staff wearing specific maritime uniforms to fully recreate her experiences aboard the ship. I don't see any sailors today, but I can easily imagine the gardens being prepared for Beatrice, as she liked to have lanterns lit in the garden so that when she returned from the casino in the evening, back from Monte Carlo, she could see the lights glimmering at home. The gardens were laid out in part while Beatrice still enjoyed the villa, the fountain garden especially, and the garden on the dining room side. The rest were planted over time, but all were lariated by Louis Marchand from around 1934 after Beatrice's death. She gave the villa effectively to the nation, with all of her collections of porcelain, art and all the treasures to be kept in situ and to retain the feel of a salon. And this is why the house can still feel like a family home today. As you walk around, you may be left alone in the petit salon, with doors to the garden and the blue sky tempting you outside. You can just imagine being here in another moment in time. So immersive is the house in the French 18th century beauty, you could easily get carried away. Out here in the garden, they've suffered both human and climatic events, and it wasn't really until the 80s that a team took up the task after Monsieur Marchand's retirement. He had worked tirelessly to create new gardens from 1934 until in 1943 he had to flee during the Second World War. So from his original planting before the war, you can still see those distinct areas today. And if you love gardens, then you'll find some of the books and guides available in the Villa's gift shop really interesting. The gardens then are now laid out with a view to providing some natural shelter where possible for plants that need it and also for providing interest and colour throughout the year. When Beatrice was here, she had a series of screens, probably made of a kind of perspex, in order to protect some of the planting of the formal gardens. Today, there's a handy guide with the garden map so you can see what's unmissable depending on the time of year you're visiting. From the Spanish and Florentine gardens to the stone, Japanese and rose gardens, you'll find the unusual and the more expected, the Provençal and French gardens too. The French garden is the fountain garden you see from the loggia and in many photographs of the villa. I'll put some on the blog for this episode so you can explore some more. Rain or shine, there's somewhere to explore in peace and a handy map from the ticket desk so you'll never get entirely lost. This is a special and unusual place. Inside the house, along with an audio guide and plenty of time to take in the antiques, china collections, fabulous views, there's a fascinating tale of a seemingly unhappy woman with incredible wealth and a taste for beauty, art 
and a lot of gambling. There are so many card tables in this house. After my walking and exploring, it's time for lunch at the very fine cafe. Sitting outside on a warm day, enjoying the relative peace of the gardens and the light hubbub of lunch going on around me, with a mixture of locals and tourists, I enjoy people watching and my delicious salad. I love to think of sitting by the fountain on a warm evening, the sky turning to diamond-studded darkness, the sounds of a Jean Sablon classic wafting on the breeze as I can hear a party continuing inside the house. These are the fanciful ideas to entertain at Villa Frusi, a villa that was a retreat for a seemingly unhappy woman about whom we actually know so very little. I love to think of what the coast looked like here before and after this villa building fashion of the early 20th century. After the horrors of the First World War, I can imagine how distant, special and somehow otherworldly the small fishing villages of the south of France were for visitors, artists and writers. There was glamour, of course. There were royal visits and high society shenanigans. But there was also a lot of space for ordinary life, too. Many of the coastline properties you see today across the Alpes-Maritimes and along the coastline of the Var just weren't there. And high-rise buildings, of course, were non-existent here. To find the heart of this feeling of the small places, it's good to travel early, to travel light and to keep your imagination flowing. Find what inspires you. Because this part of the world hasn't lost its allure for being busier. Although I have to admit a crammed beach in August would probably convince me otherwise, but then I'm allergic to being cramped. It just takes a little effort and a little planning to explore some of these small places, the hidden gems or even the popular places before the crowds arrive. The calm and beauty of Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat is precisely why it's such a popular place with visitors and the lucky people who have homes there. Now it's time perhaps to catch the train and head back to Nice if you've been on a day trip, perhaps to go back to your hotel a little closer and get ready for dinner. If you're staying in Beaulieu, there might be time to watch the sunset by the Villa Carillos, saying goodnight to a very special day exploring the Côte d'Azur. That's all for this episode, where we've enjoyed the charms of antiquity in Beaulieu-sur-Mer, landmarks and gardens in lush Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat. Join me next time for more adventures in this region. Until then, goodbye. A bientôt